Good evening, everyone. All right, that's a key. That's like this, uh, you know, welcome to the Rothko. Good evening, everyone. So I've decided that we could have a drought and the Rothko Chapel could do something and it's going to rain. I think we should just market this, the drought buster. It just seems to rain and I know more people will be coming in in summer, uh, coming in because of the traffic. It just seems to be that kind of uh, dynamic in the city. So for those that are here, welcome and make room for others as they come in. A couple of just housekeeping notes. Um, One is if you would silence or turn off your cell phones. That would be great, number one. And the second, if you'd refrain from taking pictures, that would be very helpful. Um, Partially, that's also to give us the third P of the three Ps, photos, phones, presence. Because by doing that, we're really more present together and we're able to share each other's company and really have a chance to engage with each other. So I ask you to do that, would be great. So now to the order of the business tonight. Now in its fourth year, the Francis Tarleton Sissy Farenthal Lecture, a Peace, Social Justice, and Human Rights, presented in partnership with the Rappaport Center for Human Rights and Justice at the University of Texas School of Law, is designed to inspire audiences to act creatively in response to the greatest human challenges in the 21st century. Named in honor of Sissy, the lecture is clearly in line with her history of exposing and responding to injustices and equality as both a public servant and as a citizen. The lecture series brings to Austin and Houston internationally renowned scholars, activists, and politicians who inspire their audiences to think and act creatively to respond to some of the greatest challenges in the 21st century. We are honored this evening to host the lecture this year at the Rothko Chapel and to have both a friend to the Rothko Chapel and to the Rappaport Center, Sissy Farenthold, who continues to inspire action on behalf of all that is good in the world. Sissy, if you could wave, stand, whatever you feel like doing, let us honor you for all your work and legacy. Thank you. One thing we also do at the Rothko Chapel is it's really about family and community building. And I also want to lift up Emily Farenthold, who is also a social justice champion in her own right. Emily, thanks for being here this evening. Thank you. Now, putting on a lecture of this magnitude and importance involves a lot of people in Austin, Houston, and far beyond our two cities. So acknowledgments are in order. Let me first start by thanking again you, Sissy, for allowing us to honor you. I mean, that is a, that's an honor within an honor, so thank you very much for that. Second, a deep appreciation for all the donors that helped really seed the endowment that are building this movement, that continue to give so generously, because it's through your support that this lecture is able to happen and to attract the kind of speakers that we are able to get on this podium here and at the Rappaport Center at the UT Law School. So thanks to all the donors. And if you want more information about it, you'll hear from me, and you'll also hear from Karen Engel in just a minute. Please talk to either of us, and we'll get you to the right place to continue to give to this important cause. Third, I also want to lift up the co-directors of the Rappaport Center, Karen Engel, who you'll hear from in just a minute, 
and also Daniel Brinks, who unfortunately could not be here this evening tonight. Also from the Rappaport Center are Kate Taylor and Ariel Travis. Can you wave your hands? I see you over there. And my colleagues, Ashley Clemmer, who is the director of program here at the chapel, and Kelly Johnson, who is our volunteer and program coordinator, may be running in one of the annexes or outside. But if you could recognize all of them with a big round of applause, because it really does take a village to make this happen. And then in the back, you can just kind of see, they're kind of blending into the painting in the back. I want to lift up Antenna Houston's John Plucker and Jose Eduardo Sanchez for providing Spanish interpretation this evening to create truly a bilingual space so that all can participate fully. Can we give them a big thank you for their service? Thank you. Now to the topic for the evening. Tonight we gather under the theme climate justice, the time is now, the place is here. And with that, I'm mindful of the collective stress that we are all experiencing, whether we are cognizant of it or not, that is the result of a rapidly changing climate characterized by rising temperatures, increasing levels of CO2, communities in peril because of sea level increases, superstorms, and incessant wildfires. As the recent UN and US climate reports make clear, due to our individual and collective behaviors, our economic and lifestyle choices, we are facing a very uncertain future on a planet whose future itself is very uncertain. With that as background, I'm also mindful of a place like this in particular, where hope is still alive, that there are those amidst the spiritual, economic, political, and community anxiety angst. There are those who are doing all they can to call attention to the problems that we all face and are finding ways to activate and further our collective efforts to ensure a livable planet, not only for today, but for many generations to come. Tonight, we will have the honor and the privilege to listen to and engage with two such leaders, not simply to muse and complain about the problems of the day, but to garner strength and wisdom for the work and the journey ahead. Now, to give us a little more insight about the Farenthal Lecture and to introduce tonight's speakers is my friend and colleague in this collaborative effort, Karen Engel, who is the Minerva House Drysdale Regents Chair in Law and founder and co-founder of the Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Center for Human Rights and Justice. She is also an affiliated faculty member of the Latin American Studies and Women's and Gender Studies program at the University of Texas. She teaches courses and specialized seminars in public international law, international human rights, legal theory, and is currently serving as a visiting professor of law at Harvard University. She is a committed social justice champion and a good friend of the Rothko Chapel and to all that are doing good things in this state and beyond. So Karen, welcome to the Rothko Chapel. <clears throat> good evening. <laughs> Bienvenido. Um, so, on behalf of the Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Center for Human Rights and Justice at UT, um, 
I would like to second David's welcome, um, and and what an, it's a great honor to be back here at the Rothko Chapel um, for the Francis um, Tarleton Sissy Ferenthold Endowed Lecture in Peace, Social Justice, and Human Rights. Um, and it's terrific to do it with um, David, and I wasn't expecting that detailed of an introduction, so I, I, I can't do it in reverse, but um, uh, it's uh, great to be with the champions of human rights and social justice here. Um, and I'm very excited about the lecture this year, um, which will be delivered by Elizabeth Yampier, um, a renowned environmental and climate justice leader and attorney, and the conversation that will follow it with local environmental justice activist, Brian Paras. Um, where is Brian? Uh, um, so you'll hear, you'll, you'll meet them shortly, but you'll hear a little bit more about them from me shortly. Um, before introducing Elizabeth and Brian, um, David did ask me to say a few words about the lecture series um, beyond what he's told you and about the way in which this year's lecture fits in with some of the work um, that we're doing at the Rappaport Center as well. Um, so before I do that though, I do want to repeat my thanks to David as well as to Ashley um, and Kelly uh, at the Rothko Chapel who have just done a tremendous job um, organizing this year's event. Um, and I also want to repeat the thanks to our team from the Rappaport Center, um, including to Sarah Eliason um, who couldn't be here tonight in part because she's planning for an event tomorrow, I'll say something about, um, but she has been doing much of the logistics um, on the Austin side of things. Um, and I also want to introduce you to Monica Jimenez, um, who is sitting over there. Um, so Monica is a Houstonian um, and a Puerto Rican, um, and she teaches at the University of Texas um, in the African and African Diasporic Studies. Um, and she has been very involved with us from the earliest stages, so she's also on the steering committee of the Rappaport Center, um, and has been involved since the early stages um, of this lecture, and has been involved with maybe the, almost the sole person for every, um, with Sarah, but for um, every stage of the event that, an event we're going to host in Austin, so if you want more, which you will, um, of Elizabeth, feel free to come to Austin tomorrow and Saturday, um, which will be more specifically on Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico in the wake of crisis, and Elizabeth will deliver the keynote address for that. Um, but thank you, Monica, for the, that, and also for all the work you did on this. Um, and then I'd like to repeat David's thanks to the many individuals who have donated, um, both to the Rothko Chapel and the endowment for the lecture series. Um, and of course, I have to personally thank Sissy Ferenthold um, for many, many things, but especially for the inspiration for this lecture and for the issues we address and the way of addressing them. So as David explained, this event is the result of a collaboration between the Rappaport Center and the Rothko Chapel, um, and each of us hosts the annual lecture in alternating years. So this is the second one here, and we've had two in Austin. Um, and we jointly decide, even though they're in different places, we jointly decide on both the topic and the lecturer each year, and always with Sissy's input. And this year, the decision on each, the topic and the lecturer, was clear. So climate change and climate justice are arguably the greatest challenges of the 21st century. But that's partly because of our failure to attend to environmental harm in the 20th century. Harm we knew about 
even if we didn't know what we now know, or most of us say we know, about climate change. Um, and Sissy Ferenthold was someone who exposed that environmental harm um, in the late 1960s and early 70s when she was in the Texas legislature. She fought for stronger environmental regulation and for closing corporate loopholes in the existing ones. Um, and I found a report that she um, co-authored um, on a, a legislative committee she was on called um, Pollution Versus the People. Um, and uh, that was, so she was also exposing, um, in that instance, a lot of the, the corporate harm behind it as well. Um, and she's also long called, long called attention to the disproportionate impact of environmental harm on poor communities of color. She's continued to work on environmental issues and climate change over the years, um, including when she was chair of the board of the Institute for Policy Studies, um, through annual treks to the meetings of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, um, and I, many Earth Day appearances dating back to the first one 50 years ago um, over the years. So that's all to say the theme of climate justice um, was an obvious one for us. And as for the speaker, Elizabeth Yampierre quickly rose to the very top of the impressive list of those who were thinking and acting creatively to respond to the challenge and who are inspiring others to do the same. So today's discussion is um, actually a kickoff of, of the Rathko Chapel's theme over the next year on climate change. And it's also central to the Rappaport Center um, for a multi-year project we've had on the structural drivers of inequality in the global economy. And part of that project, well, it's primarily focused on natural resource extraction and on labor. And as both Elizabeth's and Brian's work demonstrate, and I think you'll hear, the two issues are, of course, intertwined. Our own work in both areas has confirmed the importance of building alliances across geographic and issue areas, um, and to foreground and learn from the priorities and strategies of those communities most impacted by inequalities of wealth and resources on one hand, and inequalities of harm on the other. Much of the most exciting and important work being done at the community level in the United States and around the world is on climate justice. By the very communities that have been devastated by climate change and environmental degradation. Those communities are much more than resilient. They're using their situation to change the ways we think about so-called natural disasters, about development, and about economic growth. Elizabeth Yampierre is at the forefront of that work. She's done it in Brooklyn as executive director of UPROSE, an intergenerational, multiracial, women of color-led grassroots organization, where among other things, she has worked for what she calls a just recovery in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. She's done it in and with various communities in Puerto Rico in the wake of Hurricane Maria. And she has done it by organizing across communities through what she calls the translocal. Indeed, she's co-chair of the Climate Justice Alliance, where she leads efforts to organize and mobilize toward address just transition, away from extractive systems of production and consumption, 
and towards regenerative and equitable economies. And importantly, um, Climate Justice Alliance does that with gender, race, and class at the center, as they say, of the solutions equation. Now, Elizabeth has also had a distinguished career in law, legal education, and policy, and I'll just say a word about that. She was director of legal education and training at the Puerto Rican Legal Defense Fund, director of legal services for the American Indian Law Alliance, and dean of Puerto Rican student affairs at Yale University. She was the first Latinx chair of the EPA's National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, um, which I think the acronym is NEJAC, NEJAC, because I'm going to say it again in a moment, um, and served as opening speaker for Obama's first White House Forum for Environmental Justice in 2010. And I say that because even in her law and policy roles, Elizabeth's connection and commitment to the grassroots shine. My friend and colleague, law professor Gerald Torres, who is chair of the Earth Day Network and served with Elizabeth on NEJAC, wrote me today with some impressions of Elizabeth. And here's what he said. <laughs> I couldn't get the good stuff, but no, I got great stuff. So, and it came like that. Um, importantly, he said, Elizabeth has remained committed to her community. She has worked to make the interests of marginalized communities into first-order decision cons decisions concerning environmental protection. She has expanded the notion of what constitutes environmental decision-making. She has made sure that policymakers, as well as politicians at all levels, understand that environmental protection is not something to be tacked on, but is essential to the rights of people to enjoy as the preamble of the Constitution says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There are few people who has, have been as tireless or as effective as Elizabeth." End quote. <laughs> um, so after Elizabeth delivers her lecture entitled, Climate Justice, The Time Is Now, The Place Is Here, um, she will be joined in conversation by someone, and not just anyone, from here. Um, Brian Parras shares Elizabeth's commitment to fighting for environmental justice, especially at the community level. He's co-founder of the Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services, or Tejas, um, and other co two important other co-founders are here today as well, who I want to recognize, Juan Parras and Ana Parras. Um, and uh, they're both sitting here and should wave. <laughs> um, <laughs> And Brian is also the Dirty Fuels Gulf Coast organizer. It's a great title. I'll just say it again. The Dirty Fuel, it's hard. The Dirty Fuels Gulf Coast organizer. Beyond Dirty Fuels. Ah, that's good. Um, that's better. Um, I, was, I thought, yeah. Okay. The anti Dirty Fuels, the Beyond Dirty Fuels Gulf Coast organizer for the Sierra Club. Um, Brian is deeply devoted to documenting and combating environmental racism in Houston and the broader Gulf Coast region. And he devotes significant time to leading the fight for a just recovery following Hurricane Harvey. Brian is also a trained theater of the, of the oppressed facilitator, in case we need that. Um, and he used to be co-producer of Nuestra Palabra on KPFT radio. I learned 
earlier this week that this is not the first time that Brian and Elizabeth have been on the stage together. As activists working on just recovery in their own communities, but also deeply committed to the translocal, they have been in conversation before. Their discussion tonight will thus serve as an enactment of the possibilities of the translocal activism that they're both committed to. Um, and a part of the translocal is also going to mean um, that the audience will be able to participate. Um, and so um, I wanted to call your attention to some blank cards that should be in your program. And at any point, um, beginning with um, Elizabeth's uh, comments and then uh, when Brian joins, um, feel free to write down your questions for them. Um, and someone from the Rothko Chapel will be coming around and picking them up. And the great thing is that Brian won't be able to get to all of them, but he'll weave them in. And it's a great way for us to know um, what's happening, um, what the questions are here in Houston. And, I, and, I, and with that, I, I want to say, um, I mean, you'll, you'll see this when you hear from Elizabeth, but she accepted our invitation unbelievably quickly and nicely um, to give this lecture. And the reason was because she wanted to hear from you all. So um, I'm very proud that we can help facilitate that. Um, so with no further ado, please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Young Pierre. Buenas tardes, mi gente trabajadora, luchadora, bella. Um, good evening, beautiful people. And I bring warm greetings from the Republic of Brooklyn. Um, in the sacred space, I, I, I want to begin by recognizing and honoring the ancestors of the indigenous land we are standing in and offer my gratitude to its descendants. I think that when we begin, those of us who come from the climate justice movement, um, we always want to recognize the land that we're in um, and offer our respect um, to the descendants of extraction um, because that's who we are. Uh, and a heartfelt thank you to Ashley Clemmer, uh, the Rothko Chap Chapel, uh, Rappaport Center, David Leslie, Carol Engel, uh, Monica Jimenez. And it fills my heart also to be able to be here today uh, with our partners from the climate justice movement um, in Houston, uh, the organization of Tejas. Um, and I'm especially honored uh, to have the opportunity uh, to be in the space with, with Sissy Farenhold, whose life is a model of the courage needed today. Um, her commitment to human rights and her willingness uh, to insert herself in uncomfortable spaces, uh, places where she has disrupted patriarchy, are particularly meaningful to me. Um, and so today, this evening, I want to talk about uncomfortable spaces uh, because you can pick up a report, you can read the IPCC and learn that we have 12 years to do something radical and big to basically save us from extreme, catastrophic, extreme weather events. Um, you can read all that data and you can um, do, read all those reports. But what's really important because we know that technology exists, we know um, that we can be building just transitions in our communities, we know what that looks like in terms of wind and, and, and solar. But what we've been unable to do 
is build the kinds of relationships that will make it possible for us to not only do those things, but to survive. And so this, ev this evening, I want to talk about uh, and put you in an uncomfortable space, uh, because that is what we have to do if we're, able to, if we're going to be able to make it. So we as a nation have moved slowly and patiently and compromised justice to accommodate the comfort level of the privilege. And the consequences of that comfort, of those compromises, live within ourselves. As descendants of colonialism and slavery, our bodies remember. And when we don't, all we have to do is open a Facebook page and read about Emantic Branford's death just a few days ago. So here we are dealing with all of that and dealing with climate change, something that is not patient, that is not going to wait for us to get it together. It's going to disrupt the capitalist economy that feeds it, and it's going to disrupt governance as we know it. And it can either weaken or strengthen social cohesion. And that really depends on you, and it depends on us, and what commitment we're willing to make in order to change that. So frontline communities, and there was a mention about um, environmental racism and, and climate change and how that started. Um, to us, we feel that environmental racism started in the slave quarters. It started when people didn't have access to good food, when power plants were built all around communities of color, uh, when we had to deal with generations and generations of poor health and poor education that it has been here for a minute. And climate change is also the product, the outcome of extraction of both our land and our labor. And so it didn't just happen overnight, it's happened since colonialization. And it didn't just happen to the land, it happened to the people. And so for us, those of us who are descendants of those struggles, and I, um, I thought it made me really happy when Karen talked about the fact that I do remain grassroots. I do come from an EJ community. I was born and raised in an EJ community. Uh, my health disparities are the product of, of living in those places. Um, my father passed at the age of 52 from an asthma attack. Uh, these struggles for us are personal. This is not a job for us. This is not a nine to five. Injustice is inconvenient and it doesn't happen nine to five. For us, this is a life, and we are committed to do this till justice. So I share that with you because we didn't go, I didn't never took an environmental policy class. Basically, people in the community came and said, they're going to expand the Gowanus Expressway. There are 250,000 cars that go through there every day and 25,000 trucks. We live in a lead belt and no one is dealing with environmental justice. And so I went into the work because the community said it was important. And I understood that my privilege, the privilege of my education had to be checked and that I needed to honor what the community was telling me was a priority. That I needed to check that. Even as a Puerto Rican woman who was born and raised in these communities, I needed to check that and use my resources, my talents, my skills to facilitate the leadership of people who could speak for themselves. And so that is important, and that is one of the biggest obstacles to climate change. I think that privilege is one of the biggest obstacles to climate change, because people refuse to share power, and they refuse to share resources. And in our communities, we don't have the luxury to just fight climate change. We have to fight emboldened racial violence, 
We have to fight ISIS. We have to fight knowing that there are children who are being caged, who are being put in cages on the border. We have to fight the fact that um, tear gas is being sprayed on mothers and children. We live and exist at the intersection of racial injustice and climate change, at the intersection of all of the isms. And so we don't have the luxury of picking one or the other. That presents a dilemma in a climate movement where you've got large organizations with a lot of resources, with units that are dedicated to one issue. It means that they could race ahead, they could set the agenda, they could speak for us, and we have to run and catch up. And that process, that process of that top-down organizations that make the decisions for the people most impacted, that process is going to contribute to us failing. That is an extractive, competitive process. That is a process that mirrors capitalism. It is a process that um, basically turns us into the passive recipients of somebody else's good, in good intentions and doesn't honor the fact that we come from struggle and that the solutions are local and that we know what is best for our people, that we've put infrastructure on the ground. In my community, for example, we've doubled, my little organization, Uprose, has doubled the amount of open space, stopped the siting of a 520 megawatt power plant. We have reduced emissions, NOx, SOx, carbon monoxide, we have sent four young people to the South, to Antarctica and two to the North Pole. We hold the largest gathering of young people of color on climate change in the country. We do big things. And just last week or two weeks ago, we announced um, the first community-owned solar uh, cooperative in the state of New York. That's one little grassroots organization doing all that with limited resources, but grounded in community. So, Uprose is not different than a lot of the organizations that are part of the Climate Justice Alliance that are doing this work in New Orleans, in Detroit, in California, in Richmond, on the Gulf South. We are not folks, we are about solutions. And so there is this deficit-based expectation when dealing with leadership of color or with grassroots organizations where people really believe that they have the solutions and that we're going to benefit from that. And that construct, that way of thinking, is going to contribute significantly to our inability to address this 12-year mark problem. So what was this past year like, or these past few years like? We've had wildfires raging in California, Harvey in Houston, in a community that is surrounded by petrochemical industries. I remember when I was the chair of the NEJAC, um, saying we have to address the fact that industrial waterfront communities are surrounded by chemical industries and that in the case of an extreme weather event, there is going to be exposure to toxics and toxicants. And EPA did not want to do anything about that because that was climate change. It didn't fall within the realm of the things that they considered environmental justice. And then Sandy hit New York and they said, okay, let's do this report. And then the report sat there. And in the report, when we brought all of these people together to basically give their recommendations, Houston was included in that. Because we were thinking about Houston, and we were thinking about New York City, and we were thinking about Boston, and we were thinking about LA, and all of our communities that live within the midst of toxic exposure or potential toxic exposure that rises to the level 
that goes beyond what we have already experienced, where the dioxin is already in our bloodstream, where we have ex been exposed since childhood to all of these emissions that have gotten trapped in our air passages. So we were already saying that this was coming before it came. We didn't have to be in a university studying it. We didn't have to. People from frontline communities have always honored the Earth. They have always lived within their carbon footprint. We have not contributed to climate change. We, 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 we were, uh, what do you call, uh, repurposing, reusing, uh, and doing all that before that became a thing because there's nothing like necessity to make people live sustainably. So these new concepts and this appropriation of the work that is done by the front line needs to be not only lifted, but supported in a way that transforms what it looks like right now. So we had Harvey in Houston, Irma in Miami, Sandy in New York, and Maria in Puerto Rico, where more than 5,000 people died. 5,000 people, and I, as a Puerto Rican, cannot stop talking about it. I will have a tweet about it every other day. I will not let that disappear because I said when we did a rally in New York that if it had been 5,000 puppies or 5,000 kittens, people would have been upset. They would have been outraged that 5,000 kittens had died. But because it was 5,000 Puerto Ricans, it wasn't, you didn't see the response, the level of outrage, the fact that this government neglected Puerto Rico, that we have always been second-class citizens, that it has had a history of austerity and neglect that was then hit by another disaster, and no one seemed to respond at the level that that kind of atrocity demanded. And so um, I will always, I'll wear the earrings, I'll do whatever puts me in a picture that says Puerto Rico presente. Um, so, and I am a daughter of the Puerto Rican diaspora. I am a descendant of extraction, of excess population, of policies to push out Puerto Ricans um, in order to make way for uh, 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 pharmaceutical businesses in Puerto Rico. Um, my grandmother lost half her children in El Fanguito in Puerto Rico, and I was born and raised in New York, and my mom came when she was five years old. So I, I'm, in, I'm a descendant of extraction, uh, and I feel like I have a say about Puerto Rico. And I say that to anybody from Puerto Rico who thinks the diaspora um, shouldn't have a say. I don't know, there may be one out there. Um, so, so when you're thinking about Puerto Rico and how easily people forget um, of something of that magnitude, um, does anybody even remember what happened in the Philippines five years ago? when 10,000 uh, 10, Filipinos perished. 10,000 perished, and no one talks about that anymore. And they became climate refugees, um, just like the folks in Puerto Rico, where FEMA is basically, that what's projected is that by next year, 500,000 Puerto Ricans will have been pushed out of the island. Uh, because instead of rebuilding, FEMA is basically encouraging Puerto Ricans to move out. So in the midst of all of this, California, Harvey, Puerto Rico, and all of what's happening right, right in front of us, we continue to have dated conversations about race while our people are being erased. And so what I say to that is that 
The time is now that climate change is demanding, is demanding that we come correct, that there's no time for, for you to learn how to work and engage in communities of color. It's not our responsibility to teach you. It's your responsibility to look at things like the Hemes principles for democratic organizing and engage in building just transitions and, and just relationships and engaging in self-transformation. There was never a time in our history where that demand is biggest than now. And it has to happen because literally our survival is at stake. So climate change really threatens to disrupt all of these old dated models. And in Puerto Rico, people are building visionary local regional oppositional economies to capitalism. I could say that fast. Uh, <laughs> and they're moving away from fossil fuel dependency, food sovereignty, um, and they are creating radical self-management movements, and we have to support those. Um, it's really important that we do that instead of helicoptering into the island um, with resources to let folks in Puerto Rico know what's in their best interest. People in Puerto Rico know they just need to be supported, and they need to be provided with the support that they request. Um, when I went down there in February, I met people who were talking about participatory um, models of, of redevelopment from the grassroots up. And there was a level of sophistication that reminded me about the brilliance of people on the ground, about how local knowledge is really what's going to help us survive these changes and is going to redefine what this country looks like. And so, that, what is happening in Puerto Rico, is happening all over the country. And that's the good news. In Kentucky, you've got, and in West Virginia, you have Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, not only moving people away from dependency on coal, but moving to a just transition and bringing people into an economy where they are building solar. And they're doing that while at the same time protesting against skinheads and the KKK. And the KKK. So, like us, the people in Appalachia are dealing with the same kinds of threats that we are in another way. We're more vulnerable because we're people of color, but they are people who have stood up and believe that justice is not something you parse, that it's only good for one group of people that we either believe in justice or we don't. And so while they're building for a just transition in West Virginia and in Kentucky, they're also taking on the skinheads and the KKK. In Buffalo, New York, where you've got an organization like Push Buffalo, you've got an organization that has re-incentivized the local economy, an economy that was failing by engaging, by operationalizing just transitions. And here in Houston, Texas, they've developed the concept of a people-to-people -people just recovery. And our organization and the Our, and the Our Power PR initiative that was launched nationally by Climate Justice Alliance and a bunch of organizations adopted that frame, that just recovery frame. It was a frame that we use for Puerto Rico and that people all over Puerto Rico are now, now engaging. It's called just recovery. That concept was born right here in Houston. And it was born in Texas in an organization that was dealing with the impacts of Hurricane Harvey and came up with the concept because they knew that the Red Cross wasn't enough and that really what was going to help people, what was going to make it possible for people to survive and to thrive would be this people-to-people -people just recovery. The idea of a just recovery also comes out of 
uh, how people in Katrina dealt with the language of resilience. Resilience for them meant, and if you look it up, it means bouncing back. And for frontline communities and communities of color, bouncing back doesn't work for us. What are we bouncing back to? Displacement? Racism? So the idea of a just recovery and resistance meant moving forward to something that was stronger and better from, than, where, than where we came from before. And that's something that was born right here, and you should all be really proud of that because it changed the language and it changed the way people think now about how we address and respond to recurrent extreme weather events. And they did that while they were struggling. You know, they were like coming up with these concepts and inventing it because we exist because somebody imagined us and we continue to imagine a different kind of relationship with each other and with the earth. In Puerto Rico, it's very similar in some ways to Houston, 23 super funds in Puerto Rico. For those of you who might not know, super funds are highly contaminated sites. 23 super funds hit by a Category 5 hurricane. And if you could just close your eyes and imagine what that means. It means that those emissions and that dirt, that landed on people's rooftops. It landed in the soil. It landed in the water. It's in the air. And so even the number of people that we've heard have passed, that number is not finite. That will continue to, ri to rise as people continue to be exposed to the mold and to all of the, the contaminants that are in their environment in Puerto Rico. Now about our movement and where we are now, and I don't know how long I'm going, so I'm gonna to try to speed up a little bit, uh, but I think it's important for us to understand that there is a difference between the climate movement and the climate justice movement. The climate justice movement is frontline led and based in the grassroots. Basically, the agenda, the national agenda, is defined by people in the grassroots, organizations like Uprose and organizations like Tejas. We make those decisions that way. The climate movement, despite our efforts, despite our efforts to build alignment, despite our efforts to create mechanisms where we um, talk to funders about moving money to the, fr to the front line, where we talk to big greens about sharing um, uh, resources and not undermining or supplanting local leadership, it continues to be a challenge. And it continues to be a challenge because part of the culture is to be competitive and not to be collaborative. Part of the culture is to run ahead and to say, look, look, look at what I did, not look at what we did together. And climate change challenges all that. That is a dated way of thinking. That is a patriarchal, top-down, capitalist way of thinking. And time is up for that way of thinking if we don't change that. And if the resources and power are not changed, what you're going to find is that if we're not at the table, we're going to build our own. And if we build our own, and remember, by 2042, we are the majority in this country. We're the majority in this country when climate change will have fully taken hold. And it's going to take a sharing of resources and power and working with each other in a way that is meaningful and respectful for us to be able to address challenges that we don't even know about yet. It really is going to take us checking our privilege and knowing how to step back and letting other people step up. And it's a dance. And because I'm Puerto Rican, you know we know how to do it really well. <laughs> I know that's a stereotype, but it's true. 
but you know it's true. It's one of those true stereotypes. So, so our movement has to be intergenerational. It has to be frontline-led. And intergenerational means that you don't put young people in a box and say, let's hear what the young people have to say. Well, it means that young people, it means that something can't be adult-led and it can't be youth-led. Both of those models are also extractive and competitive. Young people want to push out older folks, and older folks want to hold on to power. And that's an Anglo-American construct. In our communities, leadership is intergenerational. It means that we are learning across the table from each other, that leadership is a continuum, that we are stronger, more precise, that we are on point in a community because we have people of different ages sharing power, sharing resources, sharing knowledge. I am sharper, I'm a better organizer because I work with young people. There are times that I'm in a meeting and I come in and I really think, I really think that I've got the best approach, that I thought about it, that I've got all the answers, and a 17-year-old would look at me and say, well, did you think about it? And I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah that's what we're gonna do. <laughs> it also means that we have to be leaderful, that we have to share leadership. This is not the time of the 60s where you found one iconic leader. We have to be leaderful. Sharing leadership doesn't threaten anybody's leadership, and leadership happens in a lot of ways. And so we need to stop telling young people, in the future, you will get to exercise leadership. They have to exercise it right now because they are the generation that is going to be most impacted by climate change. And that doesn't mean that it's youth-led because there are things that we know from our age, from being in those rooms and those spaces, like how to read a room, that we need to share with them. And we have to share it with them so that it doesn't take them the 20 or 30 years that it took us to learn how to read that room because we don't have that luxury and because that process is also competitive and extractive. And what we are and should be about is building collaboration and building power. So we understand that there is no longer any time to learn to work together. There's no time, should have learned that, should have Googled it. Um, and that climate change is going to disrupt everything. Everything from what you did this morning, like brushing your teeth. All of the comforts that you take for granted every single day will be gone. And think about what that, what that means with people in Texas, for example, with guns, right? What does that mean? No, seriously, not to, not to freak you out, but what does that mean when some people have guns and the Second Amendment doesn't apply to black people? What does that mean for us and our survival, despite my being melanin challenge? I just want to throw that out there, because I'm my mother's most melanin challenge child. Um, I know, it's kind of an inside joke, sorry about that. I'll explain later. So, um, so we have to unlearn our culture of working with each other. Um, Puerto Rico, for example, and I'll keep coming back to Puerto Rico, uh, has been inundated by disaster capitalists. We see that our tragedy is seen as an economic opportunity in Puerto Rico, like it was seen in New Orleans, right? Um, and then you see nonprofits helicoptering into Puerto Rico as the contemporary missionaries uh, to deepen the colonization of the world's oldest colony. Uh, so, if we don't honor local traditions and local knowledge, and we don't commit to building just relationships, we will fail.
So I want to say that the path to climate justice is local and frontline-led, that we must focus on community control of land, community control of energy, manufacturing of renewable energy, provide direct benefits to the local community, and we must insert ourselves in uncomfortable spaces and fear, fiercely engage in self-transformation. And I think that if we can do that, if we're willing to call the question, and if we're willing to really challenge everything and really commit ourselves to being different with ourselves, that we have a chance to win this thing. So, gracias de corazón. Take it, take it. Our applause. Check, check. Okay. Wow. <laughs> that was uh, that was a lot. Thank you so much, and I I, I hope everyone is listening. Um, Mostly because, you know, it's, it's a very challenging topic for everyone, even more so in a place like Houston, Texas. Yes. Um, and, and what, uh, you know, we've, we've learned to call from our Pacifica days, uh, the Petro Metro. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or the Petropolis. Where much, where much of, you know, the city's growth and identity is very much tied to oil and gas, yeah. exploration, colonization, yeah. um, and conquest. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I say that for specific reasons. Um, we didn't get to take you to some of the places where you see that most evident, um, but it's directly tied to the oil and gas infrastructure that lines Buffalo Bayou's east side of, of Houston all the way to Galveston Bay. But, but I do want to say that when we went to the, te the Tejas office, I got sick and Ting Ting started wheezing immediately. I had not heard uh, Ting Ting wheeze like that. She has asthma in a long time, and it was an immediate trigger, and that's how bad the air quality is near that office. I just wanted to add that. Yeah, and we were there for 10 minutes, Ten 15 minutes. minutes. Mm -hmm. um, so, having said that, I, uh, I did, I did want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, one, wel welcome to Houston. Thank you. <laughs> and and what, what, uh, what were your thoughts before you came to Houston? Um, what were your initial sort of ideas of this, this city and its role in the climate justice movement? Well, my first uh, impressions of Houston came from Juan Barras, um, who stalked me when I was at the New Jack <laughs> with a video, uh, with a powerful video um, that shows uh, these massive power plants with huge plumes um, and a small Latino community 
um, engulfed uh, in this. And it was, um, and so whenever I thought about Houston, that video um, would, would, is what I thought of Houston. And, um, and, I, and I, I, I joke with him and say he stalked me, but he is a fierce, <laughs> relentless uh, organizer. Um, and, and, it, and it has resulted in national attention uh, on the city of Houston because he's done that. Um, and he did that at a time where I actually had some say in terms of recommendations. So I came in here, I, I came to Houston, this is my first time with that vision uh, from seeing that video. Um, and then when I arrived and I was stuck in traffic, um, I thought, well, and then my driver was Mohammed, <laughs> and I thought, this is, I, this is Brooklyn. It felt like it felt it felt like Brooklyn. It felt like Brooklyn. <laughs> That's nice. Felt like home. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, I asked that because you know I think uh, many times when when we first started to travel around the country mm -hmm. to talk about these issues and, and talk about Houston, um, you know the first question immediate was, uh, "Do you ride a horse to school?" Mm -hmm. um, you know, but there's this real strong. That would be Dallas. Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> That's what film. I think, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but folks equate Dallas with all of Texas, you know, and that's yeah. the thing, it's, it's a very big state uh, and very different parts of the state. Uh, so my parents are both from um, West Texas and I have my father here and, and my mother, uh, well, I want to acknowledge to uh, Susie uh, Moreno. Um, and, and I often think of myself as like a, a third generation oil baby um, because they're right in the middle of the Permian Basin, um, and both their parents were also from that same area. Um, so the generational trauma from extraction and displacement, dispossession, um, I think are all sort of interwoven into this, this uh, fight. Um, so my question is, you know, how important is acknowledging the legacy of colonialism of land dispossession, of all of these things tied to, you know, us coming to a, a place where we can work together and have some, some real solutions implemented. You know, it's, it's really important because it is, um, it's built in to all decision making. Um, it's built into how government works, um, how, and it's built into how institutions have been created. And it's, um, and we actually, while we're criticizing, and we're talking about colonialism in a critical way, or we're talking about um, those systems that got us here, are failing to recognize that, um, that these systems have been built to perpetuate that, to keep a certain number of people in power, to minoritize us, to put us at the, to turn us into poster children of somebody else's agenda, that it really is about keeping the status quo um, and managing our expectations. And so with climate change, it changes all of that. And so if people fail to recognize that, like even, um, you know, when you think about procurement policies or you think about um, how funding comes down through government, uh, it's also very siloed. It only comes through one division. Um, procurement policies move very slowly and they're set a certain way and they don't have a climate lens. The entire system that we are in, from schools to the criminal justice system uh, to how government works, 
um, ha was designed a real long time ago and wasn't designed to address the impacts of climate change or to address a changing demographic or to honor the changing demographic. So it's all a product of things that happened a really long time ago and have been perpetuated over time. So I, I think it's really important if people really care uh, about human rights uh, and if they are willing to change the way they think about what humanity will look like years from now. Yeah. Um, so given that, and knowing that in, in the communities that I grew up in, uh, there are a lot of folks who do work in the industry in different ways. Uh, and many folks who live here, it's very difficult not to, because the city, you know, it's by in large part even still, you know, working alongside uh, industry. So when you say a word like just transition, I don't know that a lot of folks understand, you know, I don't understand, I don't know if the, hello, hello. Sissy said talk louder, so I'm gonna talk louder. All right, um, so in, in a city like Houston, where many of the folks who depend on those jobs, you know, is, is one of the arguments we hear all the time for anything we, we, we try and, uh, you know, oppose or fight for, um, it's jobs, jobs, jobs. So if you could say just a little about just transition as it relates to workers specifically. Yeah, so, so just transition is an economic framework that moves us away from fossil fuel extraction to a regenerative, to creating local livable economies and economies of scale. And so it is really unfair uh, to tell someone that they have to choose between their health and their ability to put food on the table. And that's really, those are really the choices that people in frontline communities have to make for so many years. And so the idea of a just transition, like what we're doing in New York, it's called New York Renews. It's a coalition of about 168 um, organizations throughout the state, is really demanding um, that the governor um, help us pass legislation to operationalize just transitions, to move us away from that extractive economy, to provide jobs along the way. Um, it, um, it puts us it creates tension between uh, the movement and unions because unions are jobs, 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 and we're like environmental justice, environmental justice. Um, but it also provides us with an opportunity to think, to really think about how do we do that. Um, and then at the heart of it is really capitalism, this idea that we're gonna keep engaging in mass production and doing more and more and not living with what we need instead of what we want. Um, and that that's a concept that we can't sustain that just can't be sustained. And what does that mean to the, for an economy? So, so those are, if folks look at movement generation and look at their just transition design that's on their website, it really sort of really breaks down what a just transition can mean at different scales. Yeah, and that's movement generation, check it out. It's awesome uh, PDF you can download. And I was thinking, too, because we're in Houston and often the state um, isn't as friendly with us. Um, we often have to try and do things either at the national level with allies like yourself and networks um, or in the communities. So for the audience and for folks uh, who maybe watch this later, um, what are some ways that they can plug into these networks to help leverage more power locally? 
Yeah, so it is really difficult, I think, for um, grassroots organizations in a state like Texas to support, to sustain the work, uh, the transformational work that they're doing. And as I mentioned before, um, the language and the concepts that they came up with actually really helped in Puerto Rico. We were, um, we were just paying attention to Hurricane Harvey when we had to pivot uh, to Puerto Rico. Um, and then we neglected Houston for a while because Puerto Rico's disaster was so big. Um, and that was weighing heavily in our hearts because we are, are really concerned about our communities everywhere. So I think that those of you who are in the audience who really care uh, about climate change, who care about uh, making sure that we strengthen um, our strengthened social cohesion, which you know is central to being able to survive uh, climate change events, um, I think you really need to ask organizations like Tejas, what do you need? How can we help you? Um, do you need us to turn out for an event? Do you need assistance in, in an art build? Um, do you need, they will be able to tell you what they need. Is it funding that you need? Um, how can we operationalize just transitions here locally so that we can model that and create projects that are demonstration projects of what is possible? The list is endless. And so I think, I think that, you know, it's not for you to call them and say, this is what I can do. It's really for you to call and say, what do you need and how can I help? <laughs> All right, I'm going to popcorn a few because we're getting good on time. Um, and these are just some issues I think uh, okay. you may have touched on in your talk a little bit. Okay. But if you could expound a little more on them. Um, what role does gender play? and the climate justice movement. And thinking of all of the well, words, drilling, exploration, yeah. discovery, extraction. Yeah, so I have five brothers. Um, yeah, five brothers. Um, and um, yeah, I was the one that no one in the neighborhood talked to because she was going to college, don't even look at her. Um, the, the climate justice movement is pretty much women-led. Uh, I, I would say that the majority of the women, of, of the leadership of the climate justice movement is made up of women, which is really interesting because the climate movement is pretty much led by men, by white men. Um, so there it, it is, and, and it's really women of color. It's mostly women of color and women um, who come, and white women who come from low-income communities. Um, so it really is a feminist movement. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a really big distinction. Sometimes when we have meetings with each other, you could see, like, you could literally see, like, uh, a table, one side of the table full of all these women, <laughs> and then you see the heads of all of these major organizations, and you know that something has changed. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's women. It's places where you can take care of your children and write a proposal at the same time because that's why you're doing it for. Uh, and there should be spaces where we can be fully present in the complexity of who we are. I don't know if I answered your question, but it is mostly women. No, you did, and, and yeah. I think you know, you, there are many different things, uh, ways to answer it also. Um, and I was thinking sometimes our sisters up north and even on the border, mm -hmm. you know, that this whole industry and model is very patriarchal and masculine. Yeah. And so it's, it's no wonder that the solutions are very feminine yeah. and very uh, much tied to people who bring life. Yeah. Um, that's it. And uh, I had another 
popcorn question. Um, you mentioned youth, and I know in our movement, in the climate justice movement, there's this concept of climate debt, and I'm thinking of the young folks who you mentioned, you know, are gonna bear the brunt of the consequences of our abundance and overconsumption. Um, can you say a little bit about this idea of climate debt as it relates to youth, but also to the global south and, and the many communities that uh, you know, will suffer the most and have suffered the most from these storms already? Yeah, I think, um, well, I, I really think that um, it's important for us to develop leadership um, and to provide young people with training like we would anybody else so that um, they can step into leadership in a way that's meaningful and they not get played. And they can get played. They can walk into a room with good intentions, with a big heart, and think that they're getting what they want, but they won't because they'll be played politically because they've never been in those spaces before. So it is our responsibility to provide that training and share um, our experiences. Um, it's also important for us to listen to them and to learn from them because they actually know um, and have um, ideas that they learned either in planning school, they learned while they were in school, things that we would never know, that we have never learned before and really change the way we even talk about solutions. In terms of the debt, I don't think that that's a debt that we created, that the front line created. That's uh, a debt that has come from our, own, from, from our extraction. And so, um, and so it's really important that our young people understand that, um, that where that comes from, that that comes from corporate extraction, that that comes from capitalism, that that comes from systems um, that are all connected with each other. I remember uh, we hosted a group from the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance, and they had come to New York for the People's Climate March in 2014. And they were talking about all the US corporations that had basically um, made the River Niger toxic mm. and how that ended up in disease and, and death and how it had literally destroyed economies along the River Niger. And so the issue is global um, and it affects all of our com communities. That's why I talked about the Philippines. You know, if you, th you think about Yemen, uh, there's no water. If you think about Bangladesh, it's disappearing. It's literally happening throughout the global south. And so it's important, I think, for young people to know how all of that is connected, what the roots to that are, and also uh, to agree to be part of a different way of thinking about, about power. Uh, because in their enthusiasm about wanting to lead, uh, they, can, they too have been conditioned um, to mirror what I was talking about a little earlier. So um, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of work, but it's, it's the thing about our organizations is that every once in a while people will say, okay, we did this and this and everybody claps. But none of us did it by ourselves. We did it as part of a movement. We share strategy, we share information, we share science, we share data. Um, it is a, a community of learning and sharing information. And so none of this is gonna be done by one organization or one person. It has to be part of a movement. And so that learning has to happen at a scale of a movement. Thank you. I'm going to ask you a question in Spanish now. Okay. I'll try to answer in Spanish. And, and forgive me for my Spanish. I speak the I learned it in school. ¿Cuál es la relación y el impacto que existe hoy entre cambio climático y migración? Bueno, voy a tratar de responder en español. Yo hablo 
So I am um, going to try to s respond in Spanish. I speak both languages of the folks who put us in this colonial state, right? Much of this comes because the issues in Puerto Rico have been created by decisions that, that are made by the corporations. And the same corporations that, for example, utilize chemicals in, como se dice, pesticidas en español that use uh, pesticides or chemicals that's affecting the health of folks who live in um, Central and South America and different parts of the world. And much of that migration is actually due to the climate change that is happening in some of these places like Syria, in the Middle East, uh, what's happening in uh, Puerto Rico, for example, what has happened in the Philippines, many of those many of that migration actually comes as a result of the decisions that have not been made by the government necessarily or the people that live in those communities and when the government does take part of that because in many ways the government does have a relationship a dependent relationship to the United States and other countries that have they're basically uh, exploiting their resources at home natural resources in those countries. And there's a second part. I tried. I'm, you know, I, I always say I speak the language of two colonizers and I'm a victim of cultural imperialism. <laughs> and I tell folks that's why I don't speak Spanish. Yeah, that's what my son says too. Only one colonial language. At a time, right? I gotta learn Nahuatl first. That. Do you think that the cult uh, migrant caravan or the uh, migrant exodus has to do with the uh, climate change impacts in Central America. Mentioned that already, mm -hmm. right? But maybe a reference for those uh, English speakers to the folks that are coming right now from Guatemala, Honduras, uh, Mexico, that many of them are also suffering from climate impacts as well. Um, here's another one from the audience. Um, how do we address issues of divestment, investment, uh, related to climate change policy mm -hmm. shifts. Well, so, so those of us who were of the generation that we were fighting um, divestment um, in South Africa um, are really excited about the fact that young people are doing that in colleges all over the country. Um, and I think that uh, I know the students at Yale are um, December 6th are going to be um, doing an action are demanding that uh, Yale divest from, um, from those companies that are part of PROMESA, uh, the oversight committee um, that has really furthered and deepened uh, Puerto Rico's debt and colonization. Um, so I think that um, that divestment, you know, when you look at, I can only speak about New York, uh, we think about how those funds have to be, um, in how, how those funds need to be put into a just transition pool um, to operationalize what we call just transitions. Um, so there's, I would suggest that you guys look up New York Renews and look at what those recommendations are. Um, and I think that we need to support that. One of the concerns uh, that I have often with um, divestment and a conversation throughout the country, uh, particularly from young people in colleges, about um, divestment um, 
is that oftentimes there, there are no young people of color engaged in those conversations and they're really talking about the impacts in our communities and young people of color are not involved in that. Um, and I think it's really important um, that they reach out to either cultural, uh, black, Latino organizations on campus, indigenous groups, uh, because what, what is happening is that by laying out what the solutions are uh, for our community, is that you are, again, recreating a problem that has existed for generations. And so you have a real good opportunity to really uh, build across culture and class and race. And I think you need to take it even while coming up with um, a campaign like dis dis divestment. The last question, and this one, I'm gonna tie together. Okay. Um, can you describe big picture an economy that is not capitalism? Um, so you spoke of the divestment. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of times here in Houston on the in investment side, a lack of investment in our youth's education mm -hmm. in job training and careers that do not depend on the fossil fuel industry. Um, so as we're thinking of an economy and maybe it's not an economy at all. Maybe that's not the right word. But as we're thinking of an alternative big picture to capitalism, what might that look like? Or maybe some examples like you offered uh, already um, that you've seen. You know, when I think about the future and I, and I, work, I work like it's climate change. Like I, I, have, I have a son and, um, and I wake up and I think about climate change every single day. And when I think about the future, I think about Octavia Butler's parable of the, so of the sower. And it really terrifies me. And I feel like if we, I think that what climate change is going to do is put us through that process before we go back to being who we were before colonization. Uh, who we were when we were people who honored Mother Earth and who shared and who bartered and who lived very differently. That who we were uh, before our extraction as people of color, as people of African and indigenous ancestry, that that culture is going to redefine what it is to be an American. In my community, for example, there are people who are coming from Mexico and people who are coming from China and from all over the global south. And they know how to farm, they know how to do things that we no longer know how to do. And those are the things that we think are central to social cohesion, climate adaptation, and resiliency. Those are the things that are going to help us survive. So when I envision a future, I envision us um, being more like that than what we have become. Even for those of us who come from struggle, and I, and I do come from struggle, um, who like things. And, and, and I've been in conversations, like I remember being on a panel <laughs> with this guy from NRDC, and uh, he was being very judgmental about people buying so much stuff. And this Latina got up and said, and why do I want, why do I want so many shoes? And I remember saying to her, because you never had them before. Mm. And so, of course, he could, with his house where he summers, uh, judge people of color who suddenly have an opportunity to have things that they never had, uh, and call and say that we're addicted to consumption because consumption kind of soothes the frayed nerves. And sadly, sadly now in spite and with having had to deal with a legacy of racism that we've had to deal with, we now have to give up 
those little things that make us feel good because climate change is demanding that. But it's also really powerful and really cool if we could re reclaim our traditions, where we could reclaim our Yoruba traditions, all of the things that we were, all of the things that we are, because, you know, I, I come from Yoruba traditions. Uh, all of those things that my ferefungo batala. All of the things that we are are the things that are going to help us survive. So I, I guess that's what I think about when I think about the future. But, um, but I, I don't know what other people think. I just think that who we were before all of this yeah. is what's going to save us. Well, and I think that's an important point too. You know, we didn't have a lot of those things. And the things that we did have were taken from us that may have fed those needs, those wants, right? Those belongings. Um, here's a question in reference to the Earth Guardians and the lawsuit against the federal government. And I guess for me, I think it would be important to talk about, you know, these Hail Marys. You know, we're all hoping. He's getting what guy? We're hoping. What about football? <laughs> We're hoping someone's going to come up with a very easy fix, you know, and, and we often rely on ingenuity, we often rely on the courts, we often rely on these singular um, heroes or events to emerge and save us all. Um, but, but I think, I think, I think that we sh we, that's what the big greens should be doing. They should be suing everybody. Uh, the, the truth is that this is not cookie cutter and that there's not one solution and that we need to, where we are, in the positions that we are, use our resources to basically trans start transforming the landscape. And nothing hurts in this country more than taking somebody's money away from them. And so, uh, because that's, that's what this country was built on, right? So, um, so I think that, um, I think that, um, Organizations like NRDC, um, I think they should be suing everybody, honestly. And while they're suing, we're organizing. What they shouldn't be doing is supplanting local leadership, hiring people to do the work that our people are already doing, mm. taking away resources from our community that should be going directly to our community. They should be suing people. That's what they should be doing. <laughs> That's what they should be doing. Do that. <laughs> Let us do what we got to do. You totally threw me off now. I'm sorry. I, had, I had my next question ready. <laughs> sorry. Sue, Sue. Okay, I remember. Sue. So in that same vein, what are some false <laughs> solutions that people need to, to just put aside? We have 12 years. Yeah. What do they need to forget about? Well, you know, even the IPCC uh, report has um, a panel that is made up of people who represent the fossil fuel industry. And so even while sort of sounding the alarm and saying that, um, that we have 12 years, the solutions that they're recommending, some of them are cap and trade solutions. And those commodifying uh, pollution and com commodifying uh, fossil fuel is a false solution. We have to work fiercely and aggressively uh, to move away from fossil fuel extraction um, we need to start working on solar, on, on offshore winds. I know that in New York we're trying to bring offshore wind to the Brooklyn Bay. Um, and, and I think that, um, you know, what we have, uh, particularly in cities, are, are rooftops. We have tons and tons of rooftops. Um, I know that where I live, 
that's our open space. You know, we hang out on the roof. And that sounds funny, but that's, that's open space. That's a place, those are spaces that can be painted white. They could be, have green roofs. They could have solar on them. So we really need to look at our infrastructure really closely and figure out where and how we can do those things. But, um, but I think that false solutions are solutions that really um, perpetuate capitalism as if capitalism isn't killing the planet right now because capitalism is killing the planet. And I say that while still liking lots of shoes. <laughs> because that's, see, that's, that's how complicated we are because this is where we grew up. This is what we learned, right? And yeah. so, so it's challenging, but it really means that each one of us has to make a decision about how we're going to live differently. How much power we have, how much economic power we have. This may be the last question. Okay. And uh, it's, it's a big one. Um, uh oh. I, I attended an event in New Orleans that was really, really inspiring. It's called the Fossil Free Fest. Um, and just sit with that for a second. So this question is, how do you engage in a positive and impactful way with industry that is responsible in many ways for a situation away from anger and a view of them as the enemy? And hold that. I'm throwing a couple of questions together. Um, because in a city that so dominates our cultural spaces as well, you know, our museums, our festivals, our celebrations. Um, how, how do we approach this in a way that's respectful? It doesn't, you know, put up walls so that folks very quickly, you know, stop the conversation. Um, but this idea of culture as, you know, a big, mm -hmm. big part of, you know, the reason it's so difficult to, uh, to win this? We, uh, um, we retrofitted uh, 12 diesel trucks um, and we have met uh, with industrial partners about how uh, operating uh, a dirty facility affects the health um, of their workers. Um, and what we found uh, is that um, a lot of people in the industrial sector uh, want to build differently. Um, but but, but there is so much keeping them from doing that. So for example, in Brooklyn, where they're building luxury housing and there's more demand on energy, on, on, on uh, waste, um, on materials, um, they would be able to get all of their products to build carbon neutral from our industrial waterfront if the procurement policies didn't prevent them from doing that, right? So there has to be ways of incentivizing and making it, instead of giving corporations corporate welfare so that they continue to pollute and marginalize and hurt our communities, they should be getting uh, incentives to be able to repower retrofits that are operating in a way that's cleaner um, and, 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 and start transitioning. Right now we're in negotiations with a power plant company that is retiring um, a peaker plant. A peaker plant is a plant that operates when the demand is highest. Uh, but it's based in a community of color, and so all the emissions are dropped in our community, even though the energy is going to a more privileged community. So they have been 
uh, working with us now for years. And so we were able to get them um, to reduce emissions by tons. We entered into a memorandum of understanding with them. They're now getting ready to retire one. And then the one that's remaining, um, they are moving towards natural gas. And we're trying to get them to work with uh, offshore wind so that maybe we can change that dynamic. Yeah. And so uh, it is possible uh, to have respectful uh, relationships with non-traditional partners uh, that are transformational. And then there are some where you can't have a conversation at all, where they hire that community affairs person who looks like us, whose name is usually Javier, who comes out, <laughs> who comes out to try uh, to let us know how, um, how the, the industry is in our best interest uh, while he's getting paid six, <laughs> six, six figures. So there's, th there's always those. But to be honest, uh, a lot of the folks, like when you look at industrial partners, a lot of those folks are folks who started small and grew big, and, and, and it is possible to have that conversation. Also, small businesses, we often neglect them. It's really important that we support mom and pop shops, particularly in urban areas. That's a real big priority for us. So anyway, it's just, it is possible. It, so, it has so happened. take all the subsidies away from oil and gas that they then use to donate to our events to look like they're good neighbors, not Again. actually their money at all. <laughs> and uh, the fines that they uh, get from mm -hmm. emissions they often make it seem like they're gifts to take all that away, invest in small group community projects. Um, so that's, that's our charge, you know. Um, we have some work to do, and I wanna thank you thank for you, being Brian. here. Thank you for thank you so much. chatting with us. Uh, is there any, anything else, one final thought? Uh, you mentioned the Green Deal. Um, oh, and maybe some, some flags I actually did folks. mention the Green Deal, but since you mentioned it, um, it's the not-so-new Green Deal. It's really, um, right now, the way it looks like to us in the climate justice movement, it looks like the old green job um, initiative with, a new, with some new branding. And I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's possible that it's a good thing. And so we're happy to engage in a conversation to discuss whether or not it is. But um, you can't create an agenda that addresses the needs of frontline communities without talking to frontline leadership. Um, and if you've done that, if you've done that, that is not something that we can trust or support. And if you take the language of just transition and you appropriate it, you co-opt it, and you turn it into something else, you are not creating something new. You are basically taking capitalism or neoliberalism and repackaging it and rebranding it. And so we looked at all the organizations that immediately supported this idea, and it's coming out of my sister in the Bronx, Alex. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I love. Uh, I love her. Uh, she's 28 years old, a Rican from the Bronx. You know I got deep love for her. Um, but she got to slow down on the Green New Deal. <laughs> and so we are going to have conversations about what that looks like. But the conversations have to happen before that first tweet goes out with a plan and a vision. Mm. The vision has to be born in community, and it has to be born out of the thinking and the vision of frontline leaders who have been working on this stuff for a minute. So 
people who continue, a whole new generation who wants to be able to run to the front and speak, to the, speak for the people most impactful, who are most impacted, are going to leave people behind who are necessary and central to decision making, and they will lose. And so process for us is really important. And we are not people who just sit around complaining about things. We are solution-oriented because the lives of our community are at stake. And so um, the only thing that I would say about that is that if you are following it or thinking about supporting it, that you stop for a second and ask, did you check in with frontline leadership? Is this something that uh, is neoliberalism? Or is this something that really lifts just transitions um, and the solutions that the frontline has been working on for so many years. So, but I don't want to throw it out because we don't know, we haven't checked it out yet and there may be stuff in there that may be good. Um, and we won't do that just out of, um, you know, we're always willing to work with people that are about it. So it's not like we're gonna reject something just because it didn't come from us. If it's good, we're gonna support it. But we don't know that yet because that conversation hasn't been had. So that's all right. I have to say about that. Right. But that just is the rule as we move forward. Thank you again so Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, no. Then I gotta stand up. You know, as we, uh, we close tonight, Elizabeth, I want to thank you very much for starting where you started with the giving thanks and gift and blessing to the ancestors. Two weeks ago, we had an interfaith Thanksgiving service in this very place with words of faith leaders representing millennia of wisdom and insight around the issue of the earth and what we as human beings can do to unturn that which is good. I also am very appreciative of the fact that you have brought to us this continued conversation, and I want to just have all of us think for just a minute about Berta Caceres. Um, Berta Caceres, as many of you all know, was honored along with Miriam Miranda here at the Rothko Chapel in 2015 with the biannual Oscar Romero Award for Human Rights and uh, was murdered, as you know, in March of 2016 around these very issues that you laid out for us today. I know that uh, I got the news today that the case has now gone to court. They have actually, they arrested people. Of course, the question is, did they really arrest the right people? But it also is a web of intrigue with corporatization, extraction, the main things that you talk about. That, that again, that sense that we're here today and this is continued conversation. So I want to just, maybe just a minute, just a pause, just a second even, to think of Miriam and Berta Caceres for their work on the uh, front lines. I think the other thing I will say is that <clears throat> I think the founders of the Rothko Chapel uh, those who had this vision, particularly to begin with uh, John and Dominic D. Manil, 
Um, I've been challenged since I've been the director saying, you're doing things on climate change, you know where they came from. Schlumberger, oil and gas, etc. But I'm also very mindful of something that I discovered in my own discovery of reading is that there was a phrase that they used of challenging imperialism wherever it exists. And I think that that also reminds us that the imperialism to which they, I think, initially referred is the imperialism that resists in our own arts. That that sense of what we're, you're laying out is that invitation that's always before us for every breath we breathe, that we have an opportunity to reimagine, we have an opportunity to confess, we have an opportunity to reconcile and take a new path. And I think they would have been very proud of tonight because it's about giving us the invitation to rethink, to reimagine, to readjust, to reinvest, and to do that which is good. And I think that with Mark Rothko and the paintings that are around us today that again invite us into these kind of conversations on the most complex, difficult moral issues are very important. And we are never asked to do it alone. We're always asked to do it in community. So thanks for being here. Brian, thank you very much. Thanks to all of you being here because you have helped set us on a pathway. As you know, we're doing this symposium on climate change at the end of February, beginning of March, and I invite all of you to come. Rothko Chapel website that's in our program because we'll just keep digging. We'll just keep talking. We'll just keep acting and we'll keep connecting. Towards that, in your program is also the website for Up Purpose, Up Rose, for Tejas, for other organizations. I hope you'll take a look at that. I hope you'll talk to the folks on the plaza tonight at the reception, and I hope you'll come to other programs in the days ahead. With that, thank you all for coming. Let's continue the conversation on the plaza. Good night, everyone, and safe travels.